today, as I'm sure you're all well aware. Christmas is coming in 24 short days, and this fact, combined with the fact that my mother is, is here visiting us for Thanksgiving, reminded me of a story from my childhood. When I was a boy, Christmas was a huge deal for me. It might be more accurate to say that Christmas gifts were a huge deal for me. I mean, my sister and I would start looking at the Sears Christmas Wish Book uh, as, as they titled their seasonal catalog when it came in late September, early October. And for hours, I remember being 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 years old, just sit there on, on the TV beyond and have it on our lap, and we'd just be poring over its pages, looking at all the toys, all the plastic stuff we didn't need but just had to have, and, and making our Christmas wish list, and, and circling things, you know, and telling mom and dad that, okay, if I circle it in red, I really want it. Yellow is kind of want it, you know, things like that. And so <clears throat> many years, when it got closer to Christmas, I would begin to, well, there's no way to sugarcoat it. I, I would clandestinely search our house for Christmas gifts that were, might have been purchased for me. Sometimes mom would wrap them up and, and, uh, and, you know, and not, not wait until wrap them closer to Christmas. And she thought that if they were wrapped and put up high that, that uh, I wouldn't find out. But I was not above shining a bright light on them to see what the writing underneath the box. But the kids are all downstairs, right? So they don't know you can do that. <laughs> well, one year I hit the mother load. I found multiple gifts hidden high on a shelf in mom and dad's walk-in closet. And I didn't let my sister know what I'd found, but I kept this dirty little secret to myself because Kinder would always snitch. So, uh, <laughs> uh, but, so I kept the secret to myself, but one night I'd gone to bed, mom and dad still up out in the living room, and the guilt just started eating me up. I just was, oh, it was, it was getting to me something fierce. And I don't know exactly what triggered this attack of conscience, but at a certain point, the pressure just got too much. And I remember I, I got out. I got up. I went out to the living room, Mom and Dad, where I'm crying and I'm blubbering. I'm, and I confess my sin to my folks, you know. I'm sorry I looked at the presents. And, and um, I, I, I don't know if... Do you, do you remember that year when I did that? Yeah. And I don't remember what... <laughs> I honestly don't remember what my mom said, what her response was. Well, my dad's been gone for 21 years now, but he came back with what was probably the best line of his ever. He said, well, that's okay, Derek. Your mom and I both had Christmases when we didn't get any presents either. <laughs> didn't miss a beat, just, just like that. Now, of course, he was kidding, and in the end, not only did I receive those presents that I did not deserve, but I also got the gift of a clean conscience, at least for that, as far as that matter was concerned. And I'm going to read a story from the book of John that somewhat parallels this misadventure from my youth, only this one is much more consequential, much more uh, serious, much more embarrassing than peeking at your presence before Christmas. Now, I know there's a, there should be a slide. Yes, we've got it here. John chapter 8, the first 11 verses. Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning he was back again at the temple. A crowd soon gathered, and, and he sat down and taught them. As he was speaking, the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in, in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer, so he stood up again and said, All right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. 
When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, Where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, Neither do I. Go and sin no more. Now, there are problems with this story. I, I, it's probably better to say that some people have problems with this story. Uh, first of all, if you read this from your Bible, or if you, you go and look it up later on, or you might remember from reading it before, likely you're going to notice this little note there in your Bible that says that something about this passage not being in the early, earliest manuscripts, the oldest manuscripts of the Bible. As you probably know, we don't have any original copies, as we sometimes say, of any of the books of the New Testament, or the Old for that matter. What we have are, are copies of the originals, or more accurately, copies of copies of copies of the originals. See, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Peter, Paul, and a few others wrote their stories about Jesus, their letters to the early Christians, uh, and their history book, and, and not long after these things were written, people began to make copies of these books and these letters. And of course, this was all done by hand. And it wasn't like you could go to Staples like you can now and buy, buy cheap paper like we can all the time. These had to be written on, on pages of, of sheepskin, scrolls basically, that had to be prepared, specially prepared for this specific use, for this purpose. And this was very expensive and it didn't last forever. This was not archival quality, especially because these things got passed around to be read and copied all the time. So... In vaults, in universities and museums, there are copies of copies of the originals, and through the magic of science and history, we can pretty much figure out what these copies of the Bible books, uh, when these copies of the Bible books were made. And the very oldest copies of the book of John, and some of them go back uh, just a, a 100 or 200 years after Jesus lived. Think about that. We have copies that go back that far, nearly 2,000 years ago. Some of them are 17, 1,800 years old. And those, we figure, are, have the, are the most closest to the original. There is less of a chance uh, for errors to be introduced into, you know, somebody putting a T when it should have been an L or something, you know, the equivalent in Greek of that. Well, those oldest copies don't have this story from John 8 in them. Later copies have it here, but sometimes it's put in different places in the book of John, or, and sometimes it's even put in the book of Luke and yet probably every Bible that any of us owns has this story in it and probably only makes note of the fact that it's not in the earliest copies of John. So if it's not in the earliest Bibles, why is it in ours even with this footnote? Well, this is an oversimplification, but the deal is that very early on, this story was told in the early church and pretty much everyone was confident that it really actually happened. And people who lived only a hundred years after Jesus told people that they heard this story from someone who heard it from Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, or somebody else who was there at the time. And likely what happened, and again, this is an oversimplification, but that somebody wrote it down at one point and said, oh, this is a great story about Jesus that I heard from, from, uh, from Bill who heard it from Luke, you know, or something like that. And, and the people who were copying the books of the Bible later on said, Everybody knows this Jesus story of this woman caught in adultery, so let's just stick it in the Bible so it doesn't get lost. And, and they put it there in John. Now, maybe it was written by John, but many people think maybe Luke wrote it. However, it fits in this part of John because it fits with the theme of this section of the book of John, which is really about judgment. 
And really, when you get to judgment, that leads to the other major problem that many people have with this story, and that is the very fact that Jesus lets this woman off the hook so easily. Now, it's true that this woman's accusers were not very sympathetic characters. It is obvious to me that they did not care about the fact that this woman had violated the Old Testament law by having sexual intercourse with a man who was not her husband. If there was some sense of righteous anger or some kind of zeal for for God's law, you know, a desire for absolute justice and respect for God's law, if that had been their concern, then they would have also brought the man with her to be stoned to death as well, because that's what the law said. And, you know, because, you know, everybody knows the old saying, it takes two to tangle. Well, that was true in this case as well. She didn't break that law on her own. But these guys only brought this woman to Jesus, but Jesus doesn't take this tack and point that out, how they were being hypocrites and not applying it generally equally across the the board there. And of course, as the text says, it's very plainly a trap. See, if if Jesus lets her off the hook, they'd say, well, that Jesus fellow, he claims to be such a religious man, but he 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 doesn't really take God's word seriously because, look, he didn't follow God's prescriptions for this woman who was caught in adultery. But if Jesus picked up a big old rock and, said, and led the execution and was the first guy to throw one, then they'd likely have run to the Romans and they would have said, you know, we tried to stop him, Pilate, but this Galilean hick, he led the execution of this woman. That was something that they were not allowed to do. They had to go to the Romans to execute somebody. They could take care of most of their affairs, but that was one thing the Romans said. No, if you're going to execute somebody, you've got to get our approval. That's why Jesus was taken to Pilate and, uh, and, and Herod on, on the, before his... Uh, our, but yeah, before the crucifixion, thanks, Red. But uh, so they would say, well, we tried to stop him, but, you know, he, we, he, he's a loose cannon. Somebody really should do something about him. That's what they were angling for, something like that. So this was meant to be a no-win situation for Jesus. Still, despite the fact that these men were, brought this woman to Jesus under false pretenses and that they neglected to bring her partner in immorality with the woman, this story has historically rankled some people. In truth, some people over the centuries have disliked it because Jesus lets the woman off the hook. Neither do I condemn you, he says. And the attitude of some people over the years has been, you know, this is very serious sin. So why did Jesus give this woman such an easy out? Simply put, some people don't like the story because they think Jesus was not hard enough on this woman. Because it's, it's quite obvious she really was guilty of something here. On the other hand, for others, this is a favorite story in Scripture as long as you leave off the warning that Jesus gives a woman when he says, go and sin no more, or the encouragement he gives her there. Our society has been heading further and further down the road of, you know, anything goes about all things related to sexuality for the last 45, 50 years, and it really shows no signs of slowing. And this is one of the favorite passages of those people whose answer to questions about the morality of all things sexual is something like, well, you know, Jesus didn't condemn the woman. Paul and the Old Testament writers, they were all about condemnation. They were meanies, but, but the, and, and they, were, they, they were very judgmental when it came to matters of sex, but they were uptight about that. But Jesus, he didn't seem to care too much about that kind of stuff. Well, of course, such an attitude misrepresents not only the Bible as a whole, but Jesus' own words at other points in the Gospels. One commentator put it very succinctly when he, about uh, what Jesus does in his story in regards to this woman and her sin. He said, Jesus forgives her sin, but he doesn't deny it. You see, since Jesus was underwriting the cost of human sin and his sacrifice, 
then he could forgive this woman her sin, which is what the text implies when he says, neither do I condemn you. Get back to your life, but don't do this anymore. Do you see why this passage is is so difficult for us to really understand? Jesus forgives sin, but he doesn't deny it. Something that doesn't sit quite right both with those who tend to be quick to judge and and harsh and and condemning when they size up others, as well as with people who tend to want to to give everyone a pass for for pretty much everything. He, he, He offends both sides with his forgiveness, but then also his warning there. And then there's a whole aspect of how Jesus goes about and defuses the situation. He says, all right, let's punish this floozy. But whoever throws the first rock had better not have any skeletons in his closet. Okay? And then Jesus kneels down, and, he just, and he's just drawing in the dust, and he waits for this to, to sink in, to what he'd said to him there. And my theory as to why the older a man was, the more quickly he dropped his rock and went home is that, you know, the older you get, the less spun up you you tend to become about things that would have really ticked you off and upset you when you were younger. So Jesus gives them some time to to think about their lies. And and for a moment, maybe they experience a bit of shame. Maybe they experience a bit of self-doubt. Hopefully they experience a little bit of compassion. And they realize they just can't do it. Pastor Matt Chandler writes about a time that he and a couple of his friends invited a young woman named Kim to a Christian music concert. And Matt was hopeful that Kim would come to Christ that evening, but what occurred was more of a train wreck. In retrospect, Matt was grateful for the experience because it changed the way he saw how to proclaim holiness in light of the cross of Jesus. And he writes this about the, the, the time at the concert, and like many Christian concerts, they had a preacher. They always seem to think they can't do without a preacher in those situations. But anyway, he says, The preacher took the stage and disaster ensued. He gave a lot of statistics about STDs. There was a lot of, you don't want syphilis, do you? His big illustration was to take out a single red rose. He smelled the rose dramatically. He caressed its petals and he talked about how beautiful this rose was and how it had been fresh cut that day. Then he threw the rose out into the crowd and he encouraged everyone to pass it around. As he neared the end of his message, he asked for the rose back. But by now it was broken and drooping and the petals were falling off. He held up this now ugly rose for all to see and his big finish was this. Now who in the world would want this? His word and his tone were merciless. His essential message, which was supposed to represent Jesus' message to the world of sinners, was this. Hey, Don't be a dirty rose. Matt didn't hear from Kim for a few weeks until one day her mother called Matt to inform him that that Kim had been in an accident. So Matt immediately went to visit her. In the middle of our conversation, seemingly out of nowhere, she asked me, Do you think I am a dirty rose? My heart sank inside of me. And I began to explain to her the whole weight of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that Jesus wants the rose. It's Jesus' desire to save, redeem, and restore the dirty rose. You know, I preached on this passage a few years back, and one of the main things I tried to get across from this story was about how we need to not be quick to judge. We need, we need to be compassionate. We need to be forgiving and not dismiss people as, as lost causes or think of them as not, of our sorts, not, not our sort of people, you know. And that point is definitely brought out in this story. The image of those men, you know, dropping their rocks and hanging their heads and walking off in shame is a, is a great thing to take away. 
However, I've come to believe that this story is not at its core really about the nastiness of of sexual sin as we often think it is. The image of the dirty rose that the, the preacher uses is not completely wrong, but it's too narrow to confine this story and the meaning of it and the import of it to, to this area of sexuality or, and sexual behavior. You see, if it's not sex or something sexual that has you standing there guilty without excuse, maybe, maybe it's envy or, or, or anger or, or greed or uncontrolled materialism or, or selfishness or hard-heartedness or, or lazy. Or, or maybe you're a gossip or maybe you tend to be judgmental. Maybe you have a substance abuse problem that you can't shake and that's got you down. Or maybe it's a sinful lack of compassion and generosity. See, the truth is we are all dirty roses, even if we've never been caught in this particular brand of sin. Jesus did not say, let any of you who has never cheated on his wife or or looked at a young woman in lust, let him throw the first rock. No, he left it wide open. He said, if you've never sinned, then by all means, let her have it, you know. See, if you come away from this story with either the idea that Jesus doesn't really care about sin because he forgave this woman, or that Jesus let this woman off too easily, then you are missing the point of this story. See, the point is, all of us are guilty. We're all standing there without excuse. We've all peeked at our Christmas presents, and none of us deserve what we're going to get. You see what I did there, going back to that story I started with? See that? But Jesus... The guy who did have the right to condemn, he was the one that was there who had no sin, no skeletons in his closet. He could have picked up a rock and started throwing it at her. He doesn't do that. Instead, he forgives us and he says, I love dirty roses. I collect dirty roses. I want dirty roses. Now, you know, I I have spent four weeks essentially retelling this same truth each Sunday. I've done this because I suspect that for each of us, there has come or will come a time when we really blow it, you know? When you think that this, this time you've gone too far, that you just can't come back from, from this screw-up. This is it. And you'll be tempted to say, well, oh, you know, the hell with it. I'm just going to dive in deeper, in for a penny, in for a pound. Well, if you reach that point... I hope you will remember this woman. I hope you will remember Elijah, the depressed prophet who just said, I'm out, I'm done right now, God. I hope you remember David. Remember the adulterous murderer who was a man after God's own heart. And I hope you remember Paul, the first one of this series that we looked at, who is probably, I think, by all all accounts, the, the, the greatest and the most accomplished follower of Jesus who has ever lived. But he was still a guy who who wrote there in Romans 7, you know, I I don't want to do this stuff, and I tell myself I'm not going to do this, and I pray not to do it, and in the end, I end up doing that very thing I don't want to do. Man, am I a screw-up. I hope you will remember all of those people the next time that you think you've done something there's no coming back from. The next time you think that, that th- this is it, I, I, I've got to move, I've got to quit my job, I've got to change churches, I, you know, I, I've got to go buy another identity and move to South America or something like that. <laughs> Cambodia, I moved to Cambodia, that's right. 
Though if you're going to slip away to Cambodia, you don't want to have a benefit auction that the whole town knows about and be written up in the papers and everything like that. <clears throat> well, the important thing to remember, each and every one of us, is that there is always forgiveness in Jesus if we want it. There's always forgiveness in Jesus. No exceptions. You can always come back. You can always ask. Forgiveness will always be extended. And it doesn't matter what you've done, what you will do, the thoughts you think inside that you think, oh, if, if, if they knew what was going on in my mind, then, then it, that, that would be over. They wouldn't, they wouldn't even want to be my friend. They wouldn't love me. There's always forgiveness, no exceptions. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the forgiveness we have in your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for the fact that uh, there is no bridge that we cannot, uh, there's no bridge that, that we can burn, that you cannot repair, that you will always take us back. This message of the gospel, of being remade, of your love spurring us to, to be people that we don't think we can be and to, 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 to repent from things that we think that are unforgivable. May it take hold of our hearts and change not only us, but those around us. And may we extend that grace and that love and that forgiveness and that compassion to everyone in our lives to one degree or another. Help us to remember we can always come back from the worst thing we can imagine because your son died on a cross for us. In his name, amen.